Hello and a very warm welcome to season two of Angelica Love's Conversations. My name is Angelica Love and I'm a social psychologist. In this podcast, I sit down with fascinating people who are very hands-on when it comes to creating well-integrated, diverse, healthy and peaceful societies. They are entrepreneurs, activists, academics, and I've invited them to have a conversation with me about my favorite subject, social integration. This episode of the podcast features my conversation with Alice Curry. It is always such a great pleasure to speak to young entrepreneurs who are determined and ready to take risks when they translate an idea for better integrated communities into a viable business. Alice is the award-winning founder and CEO of Lantana Publishing, a diverse and inclusive publishing house for children's books in the UK. In the UK, a third of school children identify as black, Asian or minority ethnic, but fewer than 5% of children's books feature characters of colour and fewer than 2% of children's books creators are British people of colour. Alice is busy and very successful changing that. She founded Lantana Publishing as a social enterprise after her PhD in children's literature and her own family circumstances led her to discover the need for a much more global understanding of childhood in the publishing industry. In this episode, we discuss the power of children's literature, how important it is for children to see themselves in the books they read and what stands in the way of a more inclusive publishing industry. We also touch on the daily struggles and pleasures of being an entrepreneur building and leading a diverse team, and how Lantana Publishing is responding to the COVID-19 crisis. If you have an interest in social enterprise, books, or by any chance happen to have been a child once yourself, then I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Alice, thank you so much for joining me on Angelica Loves Conversations. It's an absolute delight to have you on. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm really excited to be here. Today's episode is going to be about children's literature and you are the founder and CEO of a publishing house that focuses on representation of diverse characters in children's literature. What would you say to listeners who think that children's literature only really concerns parents and has very little to do with the lives of those of us who don't have any children? You know, I think I would ask them if they remember their favourite book as a child you know, the one they read or had read to them over and over again at bedtime, you know, because most of us actually do remember that favourite book as a child. And that's because children's books can be so incredibly formative. They stay with us and they in some ways shape who we are, who, who we become, how we feel about the world, how we think. You know, I still remember my favourite book as a young child. It was called Around the World with Ant and Bee. It was this tiny little book. And, you know, I'm not crediting it you know, completely with instilling in me that kind of wanderlust that has meant I've, you know, gone on to travel as much as I can whenever, whenever I can as an adult. But, um, you know, whether or not you have children yourself, I'd say that most of us can find some kind of nugget of wisdom or, you know, some understanding of the world that's honed down to just that right level of, of wonder and comfort. I think children's books particularly can be hugely comforting at difficult times, you know, at times of collective anxiety, mm. you know, like, like this year we've all just been living through and they can really bring people together. So yeah, I would say children's books aren't just for children. <laughs> and at the same time, they are a good indicator, I guess, of what stories we're putting out there. What, what's the canon in our society at the moment of the stories we want to tell and think? 
Mm, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Unfortunately, we are still living in a relatively homogenous world when it comes to at least children's books. It's a very middle class world. It's predominantly white. Um, we still are dominated by a few major franchises. There'll be, you know, Peppa Pig, The Gruffalo, authors like David Walliams, Julia Donaldson, of course, J.K. Rowling. You know, these stories will be rolled out across multiple platforms and multiple medias. They will dominate the charts for weeks and months at a time. It was actually in 2018 that the first major survey of children's publishing was undertaken. Um, you might have thought it would come earlier than that, but actually it was only a couple of years ago and it was undertaken by the Centre for Literacy in Primary Education. And that found that uh, in the previous year, 2017, only 1% of children's books had featured a main character of colour. And further surveys have been undertaken since by, by other charities such as the Book Trust, and they found that fewer than 2% of all children's book authors are British authors of colour. You know, and this is put in the context of a you know, UK society where 2.5 million school children identify as black, Asian or minority ethnic. That's actually a third of our national total. And the picture is, you know, even more bleak when it comes to other marginalised groups. So, for example, children with disabilities. Yeah. There's very much still this, this sort of single homogenous narrative around what being a child in Britain looks like today and the kind of family you're born into, which mm. is one of the reasons we've, we've come along. I recently came across a story about a doll maker that was showing dolls with various physical disabilities, including dolls with hearing aids. Which yeah. I thought was just such a, a simple and intuitive way to show that every young person is looking to find themselves reflected in a way in the stories and, and the toys that they interact with. Absolutely. You came to this subject of representation and diversity in children's publishing through your PhD. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into this subject and what really caught your attention? Yeah, well, I had undertaken a, a PhD in, in children's literature. I had actually specifically looked into the question of the way that environmental crisis was being represented in, in, in some books for young readers. But I'd specifically chosen books in which there had been, there were issues around uh, race, ethnicity, books set in former British colonies, uh, including Canada, South Africa, Australia. So where, where this issue of environmental crisis was played out against a backdrop of colonialism and race tensions, indigenous, non-indigenous groups. And, and through this, I became increasingly aware of um, the, the lack of diverse books in different countries and the ways in which different cultures were being represented within the books that were being published. So, you know, in some countries, you know, it may be a relatively innocuous case of a sort of a lack of a publishing infrastructure or tradition, meaning that some, some cultures' voices aren't just aren't really being heard but other times it's more a matter of power and privilege of implicit bias maybe even overt racism within a more established publishing industry so you know it, it became very clear to me that there was something going on um you know there was there was a lack there was a gap there was something that needed to be filled and so that was sort of my my professional move move into into the space where you know i decided at that point to set up a, a publishing house there was also a personal reason for doing it. My sister married a man whose uh, parents had emigrated from Hong Kong. Um, and I knew that sooner or later, there'd be a little mixed race niece or nephew for me on the way, <laughs> of which I now have three. Uh, and I felt really sad at the idea that they were going to grow up not being able to see themselves 
in the books they read. So I think that for me, that sort of that marrying of personal and professional reasons for moving out of um, academia and into a new form of trying to, to spread the word about children's books, in this case, a practical sort of actually trying to publish them, was how it, how it, how it happened for me. It's very interesting that in a way, your personal journey into the subject had something to do with mixed ethnicity and multi-ethnic identities. Mm. My own doctoral research was about multi-ethnic identities and building bridges across different communities, ethnic communities in the UK. And of course, that raises the whole question around biculturalism, right? Mm. British children with a minority ethnic background in the UK don't just grow up as minority ethnic children, right? They inhabit various different worlds, often at the same time, various different cultural spaces, moving often seamlessly between white British majority culture and minority ethnic cultures within the UK. And this experience in and of itself can be both quite taxing and hugely enriching. Mm -hmm. So to ask ourselves the question of how we want to represent that biculturalism in literature is a very interesting one, especially when it comes to children's development of a well-integrated multicultural, multi-ethnic identity. Mm-hmm. What happens, do you think, to children of colour or children with disabilities when they never meet anybody in their books who looks like them? Yeah, I, well, I mean, I can start by um, a quote that I always pull out, which I just think is hugely important. It's from the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development, and they have said that reading for pleasure is the single biggest indicator of a child's future success. Um, And that's more than family circumstances. That's more than their parents' educational backgrounds. That's more than their parents' income. I think it's absolutely phenomenal that just that reading for pleasure is that single indicator. And so we know, you know, through a combination of empirical study and actually just sort of basic common sense that when children identify with books, their settings, their themes, their characters, they're just more likely to enjoy reading them. Uh, And if you're from an underrepresented group, if you're from a marginalised group, you'll rarely see yourself as the main character in stories. And that opportunity to engage emotionally and intellectually with reading won't be available to you in quite the same extent. You know, we often talk about the importance of mirrors and windows in books. So windows give readers a view onto the world. They help us make sense of the world. Um, You know, they help us understand the life experiences of others. Um, essentially they help us walk in other people's shoes but mirrors on the other hand give readers the chance to see themselves in books you know their families their communities their neighborhoods Um, these mirrors are are so important because they create that sense of belonging um, I think even safety they make that reader feel like a valued part of society I was lucky um, as a child because I I had books which acted as both mirrors and windows. But children, you know, the children you're talking about, the children from underrepresented groups rarely see themselves mirrored in their books. And this can have a knock on effect um, in terms of self-esteem, self-worth, you know, and that really crucial feeling of, of, um, you know, fitting in, of belonging, of feeling valued. Yeah, I think our listeners might be more familiar with this conversation when it comes to representation of boys and girls gender in in books, because over the last five years, maybe there's been a real shift in how girls are represented in children's books. I think back of my own absolute favourite children's book, which is Astrid Lindgren's Ronya Roberts' Daughter. I devoured that book. I must have read it over 10 times. And it is sitting on my bookshelf now in in my flat because... 
it has such emotional significance to me because it represents a girl that is wild and doesn't abide by any kind of gender stereotype and to me that's always been as a child it was an intuitively instinctively um there was an there was an intuitive or instinctive sense of recognition in that character Hmm. but now it's just a form of girlhood that I absolutely champion and I think in many ways there was both a mirror and a window for me in that book and it's striking really that that conversation is only now beginning to shift from gender roles to ethnicity and race yeah and it's still to shift uh to categories beyond that so you know so uh, disability sexuality various other forms of diversity and facets yeah. of diversity. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I recognize that same shift. Um, we have quite successfully, I think, as an industry, addressed the gap when it comes to girl children being able to go on adventures and be the main characters in stories. Although you will still find the majority of characters who aren't um, obviously gendered. So for instance, an animal character, say it's a book about um, jungle creatures, the majority of pronouns used for them will be he. Um, you, okay. will, you will still assume that there's a sort of male gendering unless you are specifically told otherwise. But it is a it is an interesting point about how, you know, how one would identify with a character and whether you can identify across different a diff- different genders or, or different races potentially you know or, or you know can you identify with animal characters in the same way you could with a um, with a child and I think you you know no one would argue that you that a child can't find immense comfort and pleasure in books about a teddy bear an animal a digger um, you know a boy if they're a girl you know whatever it might be and I don't think for instance if you're reading a book with a white protagonist it's going to necessarily stop you as a black child from engaging with that book but I think the the real point is what if you only ever read books with white protagonists you know what then what if you only ever read a book with a boy protagonist what then I think it's that repeated drumming into you that this is the world order this is society you know this is something to aspire to and what effect can that have over time for a young reader who isn't included in that picture Who's our imagined prototype? Who's our default character when we conjure up the image of an adventurer or somebody in power with leadership responsibilities? Who do we imagine? And the stories we tell and the images we see throughout our lives will, I think we can all agree, have a huge influence on that. Not least on white children engaging with stories that feature non-white characters. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you have um, spent quite a lot of time working on with your publishing house as well? Yeah, I mean, we think about these these issues a lot. We also think about the types of books that we put out there, even under the banner of, of a, a book that's more inclusive or more reflective of a range of backgrounds. There's still, for instance, the majority of books amongst those that are considered diverse that are um, biographies or histories. So perhaps they're dealing with the civil rights movement uh, in America, they might be looking at sort of historical injustices rather than fiction or comedy or sort of books about children going on adventures or, you know, having fun, the kind of books we were just talking about. I think, you know, issues books, as we'd call them, are hugely necessary and valuable. But if a young reader doesn't get to choose 
what kind of books they read, you know, across genres, then we're also placing an unfair burden on them to carry the weight of that history sort of constantly, you know, rather than offering books as, a, as an escape or, um, you know, sim simply a thing of pleasure as they would be if there was wider choice. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I think it's something that my black friends would keep stressing that they need to continuously embed their own story within the wider historical context of colonialism for example or um, Muslim friends of mine constantly needing to frame themselves within stereotypes about Islam mm, and mm. I think to make ethnic identity just one aspect of a very complex identity Mm. is hugely rewarding for society. Yeah, I mean, we are all, you know, intersectional identities. And I think books, particularly children's books, have a huge part to play in that. But at the same time, it's quite a hard task to be able to reflect that kind of multiplicity that we all are within a within a book, which is why one of the things that we we very much do is work with authors who you know have a particular lived experience, you know that, that they've written their story from, um, and and that is you know that's a window that or potentially it's a mirror, but it's a little sort of gesture towards the fact that we are these very complex people, but we are not one homogenous entity, which which publishing has tended to show us. Yeah. Before we talk a bit more about Lantana Publishing and how you work, mm. let's talk about the publishing industry as a whole. Mm. Why do you think that publishing houses still only feature so few children's books with diverse characters? I think for one, you know, change is always slow within a big bureaucratic machine like a large publishing house. Um, I do think there is a genuine will towards change, but embedding new processes takes time I think you know on a very practical level a book takes two or three years in gestation um, and in the case of large houses who only work with literary agencies you know those agencies themselves will need to undergo their own revolution in representation before new authors start feeding into that publication process and the publishing workforce itself will need to di diversify if it's going to fully represent, you know, the society it's publishing for, I think we can we can we can give credit to a point to the big houses in their move towards widening their intake. I think that process has begun, but you know we can't forget that publishers rarely sell to the ultimate end user. You know, in our case, it would be the parent who would be buying that book for their child. You know, instead we sell to a series of wholesalers and suppliers who sell to retailers who sell to the general public. Um, you know, and that, and, that, and this means that there's, there are various people um, responsible for selling the books on to the next buyer in that chain who, who, you know, who essentially can become gatekeepers. You know, a gatekeeper might be a buyer within a big wholesaler or they might be a, um, a bookshop owner. It might be the parent themselves deciding on what's appropriate for their child. Um, and they may or may not have recognised the extent of the problem with representation within you know within the spectrum of publishing in the first place you know I think at the end of the day publishing is an industry where margins are consistently low for print books you know unlike some other sectors it's not possible to sell your book for a vast amount more than you can produce it for um, so you know this really reduces publishers appetite for risk you know when the margins are small and the discounts are high you know it's much harder to say okay we're going to buck the trend and produce something we've never done before um, for an audience we haven't yet defined. I think that's a lot of where the, the problem still lies. Yeah, it sounds like a really complex 
supply chain actually from the author's desk where they wrote their book or the mm-hmm. illustrator's desk where they drew beautiful illustrations mm-hmm. to Waterstones or you know any other bookshop. It's longer than you would expect and there is a lot of loss of control from the publisher's point of view you know as to how your book actually reaches that end buyer it's, it's very difficult to actually map the book's journey. You said that there is therefore very little appetite for experimentation and for actually exploring and I guess ultimately also building a new market so you founded Lantana Publishing I guess to try to be a little bit of an insurgent force in this in this infrastructure and to try to change things from within which I think is admirable because many of us stay on the outside observing a problem and philosophizing about ways of changing it but then actually never take the plunge to do that what do you think is the power of a small publishing house like Lantana Publishing? I well when I entered into it I was sort of entirely naive really I'd had some sort of academic experience of children's books but, but never in the actual production of them and I think at the time I felt this acute awareness that this was the case. I think people talk about imposter syndrome, that idea that, you know, someone's going to find out that you don't really know what you're talking about. (laughs) But, you know, now that I look back at it, I actually consider that naivety a sort of hidden strength, as it were, a sort of like a superpower, if you like, because it meant I didn't fall into some of the traps that older publishers have fallen into you know I didn't have to do things in the way that always been done I could look at things and say you know why do we have to do it that way or in fact you know how can we do it our way I could start questioning processes and finding better solutions um, you know and I think that's exactly the role of the small publisher I think small publishing uh, independent publishers tend to take the burden of risk within the industry you know they tend to be the ones who seek out new voices they're the ones who test out new ideas they um you know they start new trends uh, then once they prove successful um you know it's at that point that the bigger houses tend to enter the picture they may offer those same authors uh, i don't know bigger advances for their next book um or you know maybe they'll even buy up that small publisher eventually and make it into one of their own imprints to incorporate that change into their own publishing process going forwards. So, you know, as a small publisher, and I guess in our case, it's one of the first to specifically focus in on inclusive voices. I feel that we were, um, I guess, and still are at the vanguard of of that change. And we we will live or, you know, we'll live or die by our decision to make this, you know, the mission behind our company. I think you founded Lantana Publishing as a social enterprise, didn't you? What was the thinking behind that? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I sort of knew from the start that we always, you know, that I wanted impact to really be at the heart of what we do. We want to give readers who haven't been able to see themselves in books the chance to see themselves reflected. You know, we want to give authors whose voices haven't been heard a platform to speak. We've always wanted from the start to embed sustainable practices into our production and supply chains, you know, working only with printing plants that that have developed really strong environmental credentials. There's a very sort of clear mission statement around what we wanted to achieve and I think that sort of that marrying of purpose and profit is that way we're going to create some real change and that's exactly the point of a social enterprise you are understanding that you can be a profitable business within the context of creating some kind of social and environmental impact um, so for me, that's absolutely how we see ourselves. And I think, you know, we can we can look ahead in publishing, you know, when it comes to to this point in time and, and, and think, you know, how are we going to go forward? What changes are we going to see going into the future? And, you know, as I said, I do think there is this real, real will 
towards change. Um, I think we will continue as an industry to become more diverse, to build a more inclusive workforce and, you know, and a more inclusive list of authors and books. But at the same time, I think we're going to experience lots of difficulties um, when it comes to being squeezed in terms of our margins even further than we are now. I think we're going to experience the, the sort of the economic fallout from the pandemic. I think we're going to experience um, Brexit in a really negative way. Sorry, I've moved on to a whole other topic, but but I think I'm just, you know, I'm in, interested in sort of whether or not the idea of being able to do good and to, um, you know, be profitable businesses are going to, uh, we're going, they're going to come into conflict, I think, as we go forward. Uh, we're going to get torn between the change, you know, change we want to see and the financial constraints of making, making that happen. So, you know, I am interested in, in what that means for us as a small business, um, as a social enterprise, as a publishing house. Um, you have already mm. mentioned collaborations with authors as something that you seem to really enjoy. Mm. I'd love for you to tell me about maybe one or two authors and illustrators who have stood out for you in this journey of the last, I think, six years now since you started Lantana Publishing. Having had a look at your website and the books you advertise, They are exquisite, especially oh. with regards to the illustrations. I've hardly ever seen anything like it. And I encourage everybody listening to just look at them for the aesthetics. Oh, well, thank you, firstly, for, for that lovely compliment about our books. I'm incredibly proud of our authors and our illustrators. We work with this hugely talented, diverse collection of people. They really are the powerhouse behind what we do. I guess one story that always sort of comes to mind is actually our very first book um, it was the very first time I, I actually thought okay can we can we do this as a publishing house I had reached out to uh, one of my favorite authors she's an African-American author called Nnedi Okorafor she uh, has Nigerian heritage and and sets all of her work or the vast majority of her work in Nigeria or a brilliant sort of futuristic um, version of I had read various books of hers previously, an adult book, uh, well, uh, various adult books and um, and books for middle grade readers. But as far as I could tell, she'd never written a picture book. And I, I, I reached out to her very early on. We didn't even have a, in fact, it was just me at the time before I had built my, you know, wonderful team. You know, I didn't have a website, didn't have sort of anything really, um, just an idea. And I wrote to uh, to Nettie and I and I said, you know, look, I've loved your books in the past. Um, you know, just found her email on her website. Um, I had actually written about them for my PhD, uh, so I sent her a couple of articles I'd written. And I just said, look, you know, I'm thinking about setting up a publishing house to focus on voices like yours because I think it's so so important that we we fill this gap. Um, and you know, could you give me some advice? And she came back. And she said, you know, do it, go for it, please set it up. We need we need more publishing houses like this. Um, and I'll do you one better than advice. Uh, here's a manuscript. So, wow. <laughs> um, so you know, uh, that was our first ever book. It went on to win the um, Children's Africana Best Book Award, which is an award run out of Washington. Um, and we actually flew to Washington for the award ceremony. It was in the Smithsonian. Uh, wow. And we did a book reading at the Library of Congress. And I, <laughs> and I just thought, well, do you know what? If um, if we can manage this with our first book, then maybe we can. <laughs> maybe we can start. Yeah, exactly. Maybe we can manage anything. So, um, yeah, so that, that was wonderful. That was really very much a thing, of, you know, to give, give us confidence that we, we 
we we actually had something here and since then we just we've we've just worked with some fabulous people we tend to um very often work with debut authors giving um new voices an opportunity to publish as being one of you know one of the strengths i think of our mission statement um and um we're always you know incredibly excited when we can do that and we we have seen our some of our authors sort of and illustrators move to 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 more and more success having had their head start with us or their first start with us um in fact one of one of them again i can just pick out one other uh, illustrator she's called Poonam Mystery. Um, she, you know, she's from Leicester, um, Indian heritage, and she'd never done a, a picture book before. And she has this absolutely exquisite art style. It's um, it's influenced by the sort of Kalamkari textile techniques in India. Incredibly detailed, absolutely stunning to look at. And she's done three books with us. Um, you're safe with me, you're snug with me, and you're strong with me. And the first two of them um, were not just long-listed, but actually shortlisted for the Kate Greenaway Medal, which is the top um, illustration award in the UK. And it's almost unheard of for a debut author to be shortlisted in the first place, but um, uh, to, to have managed to do so twice was absolutely stunning. And so I'm, I'm so pleased for her. It's meant that she's now kind of uh, become a, a name to watch in publishing. And so that's just, a you know, that's, that feels a real success story for us. I feel like the exquisite nature of the illustrations is a real draw for majority ethnic readers as well. Mm. You can just get lost in looking at it and just loving the detail and the warmth of the colours and the originality of the design, mm. which is beautiful because it makes difference fade into the background. Mm. And I imagine it's just a really good hook for anyone to become really attracted to the stories that you're sharing and then almost sub subliminally change our understanding of what the dominant narrative is within our culture. It's it's a beautiful thing to focus so with such concentration, with such dedication on both the illustration and the story. Mm. We're obviously we're recording this remotely during the COVID-19 pandemic, and I feel like books have become a great way of escaping. Do you feel that how we engage with stories, that reading for children has changed during the pandemic and, and has your work as a publishing house changed? I think there's very much been a sense that books have that capacity to provide comfort and solace to to young readers in difficult times, well, to, to any reader in difficult times, actually. Um, I think the, the one big change for us and actually across the industry has been to make unprecedented move towards accessibility you know in our case we immediately converted our entire list to um, ebook format uh, we put some ebooks out for free and we also made them accessible uh, to as many children as possible despite the closure of libraries and bookshops and obviously this is in response to the fact that our normal method of selling through the trade almost ground to a halt overnight so we you know we had to do something and we wanted to keep readers reading so you're kind of shortcutting that very long and arduous process with all the various bottlenecks that we talked about earlier to an extent yes i mean ebooks still are distributed through various you know sort of aggregators and, and platforms so that there is an element of that but yes in our case we you know we put them straight up on our website we actually started focusing around how we could build a community around our very site so around who you know around our social media and around um, what we you know who we are as a, a publishing house we actually launched an online 
book club um, via YouTube and IGTV. So we asked our wonderful authors to do book readings um, for children stuck at home. Uh, we also partnered with Akezi Morrow, who is a well-known British actor, um, and he created this absolutely fantastic new YouTube channel called Tata Storytime, uh, which is to focus on uh, African um, and voices from um, African descent and books that reflect these cultures. And it's been a huge amount of fun. There was a, a real sense we wanted to try and engage people directly. We also, I think, on a, um, a more, um, you know, understanding that this crisis is, you know, had a huge knock on impact on children's education and, you know, educational prospects and that it's it's children of colour who are likely to bear the brunt of that. We, we also partnered with World Reader, who are a, a digital platform. Um, they're a charity. Um, they work to transform literacy and improve access to education across, I think it's nearly 50 low-income countries, mostly in the global south. Um, they, they have this huge reach. I think they reach nearly 13 million young readers, something like that, you know, many of whom will have had, you know, very serious disruptions to their education through through the pandemic. So we made our titles immediately accessible for free um, on those platforms. So, you know, yeah, I, I think we all as a publishing house, I think we can all be proud of ourselves, actually, as an industry for having really sort of jumped to the to the challenge and tried to do what we could to to help our help our readers um, and provide that kind of solace and that that sense of comfort through anxious times. Um, you know, and hopefully that will that will continue to an extent. I think we need to be more open as an industry. Um, and one practical change, it hasn't sort of affected us to the same extent because we are a relatively remote team anyway, although we're based in Oxford. You know, the larger publishing houses have also started making moves to try and be less London-centric and less centralised within the big cities. Um, there's been very much a sense that actually publishing needs to extend into the margins, whatever that might mean, and hopefully will therefore become more inclusive. So I think that's a positive move within our industry as well through the pandemic. Of course, the COVID-19 pandemic has coincided with another big earthquake in our society, which is mm -hmm. the Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. movement flaring up as a result of the death of um, George Floyd in the US. October is also incidentally Black History Month. And we know that both the pandemic and generalized racial inequalities leave a huge mark on the lives of young children growing up in the UK and, and growing up in the US, of course. Mm -hmm. And as you said earlier, reading and the stories that we identify with and the windows that we can look out of mm -hmm. all have a huge impact on life chances later on. How is Lantana Publishing engaging with all these movements and with all these big societal shifts? Is there anything that you'd like to highlight that you did as a response to the Black Lives Matter movement, for example? Mm, I mean, that has for us probably been the most seismic shift um, of the last few months, you know, even beyond the pandemic, in that we were suddenly faced with this sort of influx of people who were interested and engaged with trying to access books for children, which were going to help them discuss ideas around racism, um, anti-racism, how to have conversations about racism um, with children. And um, and we have very much been at the, the forefront of trying to produce these kind of books from, you know, for years, well, you know, the few years we've been, we've been in existence now. And so, um, a few mentions in the press and you know a few circumstances meant that that a lot of people came to us to try yeah. and understand you know to try, try and seek these books out which has been um hugely 
valuable, you know, for us as a house in that we, we can then say, OK, yes, this is a movement um, towards trying to, to, to make some kind of change. We saw, a, I think it was a 300 percent increase in our sales for, you know, within a week. You know, it was it was absolutely it was huge for us. And it has meant that we have been able to build that sense of community around our social media and our engagement, you know, much, much quicker. And yes, it's it's so important to engage, to not just sort of um, think, oh, this is a moment that's going to pass. I mean, for us, this is the moment, you know, this is what we've been trying to do for the last, you know, six years. Um, and it needs to be kept at the forefront of people's attention. You know, we are trying to amplify that black voices um, always. And so, you know, things like Black History Month, that's um, that's a great example of where we, you know, have have a, a specific time in which to celebrate, you know, the achievements of people of um, African and Caribbean descent, you know, and a, a time to recognise the central role of black people in British history um, but you know Black History Month could also be our full year if you see what I mean so and it's, it's important we keep these things in mind as we as we go forwards but in this case you know we are we are putting out um, a series of uh, social media posts about achievements of some of um, Britain's unsung uh, black heroes so you know that's something to watch out for and we're also publishing a new book which I'm just really excited about uh, it's out on the 1st of October and it's called A Story About a Fear it's by the late celebrated poet um, from Jamaica, James Berry. He um, he grew up in Jamaica, moved uh, to the UK in the 50s. So he um, is this incredibly prolific, but also just brilliant poet. He died a couple of years ago and we partnered with, the, um, with his estate to uh, bring one of his poems to life in the form of a picture book. Um, it's a beautiful poem. It's about a little girl who puts on a white dress every morning and that dress picks up her experiences throughout the day. So, you know, when she passes a bed of roses, um, you know, the, the roses remain imprinted on her dress. When she goes to the zoo, uh, she takes the tigers back with her picture on her dress. Um, but the next morning, um, as soon as the sun rises, the dress is clean and white again, ready for a new day. It's I think it's just a really wonderful way of looking at the sort of the innocence of childhood, how every morning is, you know, a clean slate, it's a blank page, but also of the way that memories, you know, that we take, we take memories with us from childhood into adulthood as we grow older. And it's beautifully illustrated. You talked about our illustration. That's um it's it's beautifully illustrated by a Brazilian artist called Ana Cunha. So yeah, out on the first of October in bookshops, but also I think actually yeah available to buy from our website right now. <laughs> that sounds wonderful and it actually brings us neatly to the end of our conversation I like to end these with asking my guests whether they have a call to action something that our listeners can do to help build more inclusive communities and I think you're a brilliant person to ask this because you took that leap right you entered a space that you didn't know much about mm -hmm. but you knew what you wanted to see it become and from our conversations I get the sense that you've taken huge strides towards making that a reality mm -hmm. Yeah, I I do always say this to people. I think if you have the capacity to take a risk, do it. If you're scared about something, um, try and work out why, where the fear lies, and actually try and try and see a way through it if you can. I think for me, the the risk would have actually been to not do the thing that I felt was the right thing to do, um, to, to not try and, you know, follow the thing that I was passionate about. Um, I would say, um, yeah, if, if, if someone has it in them to, or the capacity or the practicalities, you know, there's a lot of logistical things about whether or not you could do something as the craziest <laughs> set up your own business. But if you have the capacity to um, take any kind of risk to make change, 
along the lines of the things you're passionate about, um, then I would say try and go for it if you can. But on a much more sort of universal level, um, I would ask everyone to actively seek out stories by authors who make a diverse range of lived experiences accessible, you know, whether for children or whether for themselves, to read as widely and diversely as you can. Because reading has been scientifically proven to build empathy, you know, and obviously I would say this as a publisher, but, but I think that really is it. My call to action would be for everyone to read more to read for pleasure to read for knowledge to read for understanding you know i i really believe that that books have the power to change hearts and minds and that it's a way that we can build inclusivity among our communities thank you alice what a brilliant call to action and thank you for this lovely conversation i really appreciate you taking this time for me no thank you very much Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Angelica Loves Conversations. As always, if you enjoyed listening to Angelica Loves Conversations, I would be grateful if you chose to subscribe to the show. Just click follow on Spotify or subscribe on most other podcast platforms. And subscribing actually means that you won't miss any of the new episodes, including two bonus episodes that will be released in a few weeks' time. Finally there are two small things that you could do to help other people find the show. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, I would be really grateful if you could leave a rating or a review. Ask a friend if you're unsure how to do this. And whilst you're speaking to that friend or any other friend, really, tell them about the podcast. Maybe they'd enjoy Angelica Loves Conversations too. Right, that's all from me. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to you joining me again for the next episode of Angelica Loves Conversations. Bye-bye.